News, notes, and Zola next on Baseball HQ Radio. Here's the pitch by Downing. Swinging. There's a drive into left center field. That ball is going to be out of here. It's gone. It's 7-15. There's a new home run champion of all time, and it's Henry Aaron. The fireworks are going. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, February 21st. It's show number 10 of the 2014 fantasy baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host. And we have another great show for you with our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols and from the American League with Jock Thompson. We'll have our weekly Talk with Todd, featuring Todd Zola, discussing how to balance risk with upside, the positive uses of mock drafts, and the true value of draft slots. And in Master Notes, BaseballHQ.com speculator columnist and general manager Ray Murphy talks about takeaways from his labor mix draft. It's another big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The A's have made another unusual roster development. Is it Moneyball all over again? We gotta talk some baseball. Yes, how about those A's? The San Francisco Gate has pointed out that the A's have three extra players in camp with big league pitching experience. But no, they're not going to be considered for the A's pitching staff because they're all position players. Non-roster catcher invitee Dusty Brown threw an inning for the Red Sox in a blowout loss to Toronto. And by the way, he struck out Randy Ruiz, who had homered twice that day. Outfielder Sam Fuld pitched last year for Tampa. In an 11-2 loss to the Angels, he got his one out with five pitches. And outfielder Craig Gentry got an inning a couple of years ago against Oakland. Now, is this coincidence? You might say probably because the team hasn't used a position player on the mound since Frank Menachino gave up six hits and four runs, pitching an inning for the A's at Colorado back in 2000. But the team's assistant general manager for baseball operations said, no, it wasn't a planned thing, but it's also not a coincidence because the team does look for athletic versatility in its bench players. If we've learned anything about the Oakland A's, it is that they always have a method to their maneuvering. So don't be surprised if this turns out to be another small way to get an edge. And we fantasy owners could take a lesson from that. Always be looking for a small edge. Before we proceed, if you're wondering why there was no Tuesday edition of Baseball HQ Radio this week, it's because the hard drive with all our show content failed five minutes before production started. We got all our data back thanks to the technical wizards at Waterloo Networks in Waterloo, Ontario, and so we'll be able to present our feature interview with Steve Gardner, the senior fantasy editor at USA Today and usatoday.com. That show will arrive at iTunes and at BaseballHQ.com, next Tuesday, February 25th. No tech problems with this show, and we begin, as always, with our League Watch News reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with players from the American League, and leading off, it's the National League Report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks a lot, Patrick. 
First news uh, that we have in the National League this week, Andrelton Simmons, one of the best young players in all of baseball. Atlanta shortstop has signed a big contract extension, which comes very early in his career, but is probably very well deserved and a pretty smart play by the Braves, a pretty smart organization. Yeah, probably so. You know, one of the things that, that we, when you see a big contract like that and you're a fantasy player, you look and say, maybe I need to take another look at this guy. And the thing to remember about Anderson Simmons right now is that the reason he got that contract is he's a, a tremendous defensive shortstop. I mean, probably I saw something that said he's probably the second best defensive player in the game, all positions, everywhere last season. So, you know, that's why you give a guy who hit 248 last year a, uh, a, a 24 years old, a huge contract. And certainly we need to look at him fantasy-wise as well. But here's a guy who's still developing. I mean, we're, you know, this is probably a, a mid-teens ball player in terms of dollar value, uh, $12, $13, which is what he earned last year. Kind of a middling BA, 260 BA. He'll hit kind of double-digit home runs, not a lot of steals. Uh, and got to remember, that's why he got the contract. On the other hand, Growth for this guy, 24 years old, upside, according to the baseball forecasters, 320-20. So not a bad stock to invest in in a keeper league. I'm not so sure I'd jump all in in a one-year league at this point. There are certainly better shortstops out there for the current season. He's got a lot of things that are pointing in the right direction. As you said, the forecaster said his upside is a 20-20 year. I'm not so sure about the stolen bases. I, I don't see his natural athleticism yet translating into stolen bases because he just doesn't have the technique he doesn't get the reads off guys but his 248 batting average in in two years in the in the national league a cup of coffee 160 or so at bats in 012 he uh he had a 270 expected batting average last year 272 so we know that that's probably his natural level right now is about in that 270 range he had 248 last year as you mentioned 289 the year before again he's bouncing around that 270 XBA. I think the, there's a possibility here that this could be a 275 hitting guy this year. And if it is, uh, he had 17 home runs last year. He should manage that again. And uh, his runs and RBIs are going to be in the 70s, high 70s, mid 60s for, for RBIs. And uh, stolen bases will be a bit of a wild card. I think the, the ceiling is very interesting here. I think if if you're in a league where you can get a guy who's got a, a lot of upside, we're always looking for a chance to get a guy at his floor price rather than his ceiling price, and I think that's going to be the determining factor on the wisdom of acquiring Andrelton Simmons for your roster this year in an auction league or in a uh, straight draft league. If you can get him at a round where you're buying his floor and not his ceiling, I think it's probably going to be a pretty good bet. I, I think you're right, Patrick. I, the ceiling is very interesting, and I agree completely with you. If you can get a guy at a, at, a, at a decent price who's got a lot of upside, that's what I'm always looking for in a draft because upside upside will pay you off in the end. The other thing to look at with Simmons, too, is you're talking about the, the XBA 91% contract, contact rate last year. So the guy makes contact and a little bit more luck on the hit rate side, and, and he could do considerably better than he did a year ago, very definitely. Over at the, our Facts and Flukes section, we had a, a segment on the second base situation with the Chicago Cubs, and one of the names that popped up is Darwin Barney, and here's a case that might be the opposite, that almost no matter what you pay, you're buying uh, nothing but downside. I was thinking absolutely the same. I mean, pr probably Darwin Barney's going to do better than he did a year ago. He hit only 208 last year in 501 at-bats. You sit there and imagine that, you know, 200, 208, 501 at-bats. How is this guy on the field every day? Uh, with, uh, with with not much other production. And probably if you look at it, yeah, Darwin Barney should have hit around 250, but that's about it. 
I mean, this is a guy who doesn't have great skills, who's not going to be extremely productive in terms of, of fantasy numbers. Uh, not somebody I would want, I think, on my roster just because he has a full-time job. And the other thing to remember about Darwin Barney, that they're, the, the Cubs have a, a young second baseman behind him who's probably a couple of years away, but uh, Darwin Barney is not going to be the second baseman in Chicago very long, and especially not at those kind of numbers. Yeah, Jeff Thomas wrote about it. Wrote about the situation at Baseball HQ, and he did point out that there's a guy called Arizmendi Alcantara. That's the one. Who's coming up, coming up quickly behind there, and yeah, it's a it's one of those situations where the sort of standard advice is try to buy guys who are going to get you lots of at bats, and certainly Darwin Barney figures to get you a lot of at bats. He's had more than 500 each of the last three years, but it's mostly because of his glove and and. and They'll have to put up with that if they have no better option. At least they're not costing themselves runs defensively. But as soon as somebody comes along who can hit at all, you got to be thinking uh, a, a fellow whose XBA is in the 250s and his actual BA is way under that is not long for the world. Uh, we had an interesting uh, occurrence at BaseballHQ.com this week, Nick, about Alex Wood, the Atlanta starting pitcher, who made two columns, uh, Playing Time Tomorrow column, as well as Steve Nickran's Springtime Questions column. Alex Wood is an interesting case. Alex Wood is a very interesting case. I mean, here's a guy with a whole lot of talent who, who's showing up, I think, in a lot of sleeper lists and that sort of thing. And, the, and, and Stephen Nickran pointed out something very important about Alex Wood, that his, his, his dom over the last four months of the season, 13.5, 8.7, 8.4, 6.9, and his, his BPV went from 142 down to 32. What that suggests is, if the guy wasn't hurt, that he was really getting tired. I mean, this guy just kind of wore out as the season went on. And what the Braves are saying is they're going to limit his innings this year. That makes a lot of sense. We've got a young pitcher, a 23-year-old pitcher, who showed signs of fatigue last year. Uh, definitely an innings limit is an interesting thing that, that, that you need to take into account if you're buying him for fantasy purposes. We're projecting 145 innings, and my guess is that's about it. That no matter how well he does, the Braves are going to keep him right around that 145, 150 inning limit. It's unclear how they're going to get there. They might, they might start the year with Wood in the rotation, and then as the innings reach that upper limit, go ahead and, and put him back in the bullpen. But the other option is they've got Freddie Garcia, who could pick up that that fifth starter spot, is to start him in the bullpen and bring him in, build him up slowly, and then bring him in later on. But I think if you're buying Alex Wood, you've got to remember. Here's a guy who's not going to pitch 200 innings this year. March 25th is the date to watch here because Garcia can walk away if he doesn't have a major league roster spot by that time. March 25th, Freddy Garcia can walk away from this minor league deal he signed. So on March 26th, if Freddy Garcia is still on the roster, you have to believe he's going to start the year in that fifth slot and Alex Wood will have some kind of swing, long roll in the bullpen. Yep, absolutely. And you're right about that date. That's, that's a key date if you're looking at either Freddie Garcia or Alex Wood. Giving Jeff Tomich a lot of uh, time to this week on Baseball HQ Radio, he also, in his Facts and Flukes column, talked about Randall Delgado, and so did Steve Nickrand. Randall Delgado, a starting pitcher in Arizona. You know, this is a guy whose stock has plummeted over the last the last couple of weeks with the signing of Bronson Arroyo, because suddenly Randall Delgado goes from a fifth starter into the bullpen. And, and that's probably a good thing for fantasy folks to take a look at, because... Randall Delgado is one of those young guys who hasn't quite put it all together yet, but who is very, very promising. 
He's he's got a he needs better command of his sinker. Uh, Stephen Dickram pointed out that batters had a 569 slugging against his sinker last year, and he threw that pitch more than twice as often as any other pitch. But you know, here's a guy with uh, whose control developed last season. Uh, he's got he's shown in the past dom rates of 7.4 down a little bit last year, but 6.1 dom last year, but a 1.8 control. So things are kind of coming together for Andrew Logato, coming together perhaps a little bit slowly. And right now, he doesn't have a rotation spot. That's nice if you're looking for a uh, a one-buck buy at the end of a draft because here's a guy with some real upside. The first thing that jumps out at me is a relatively high home run per nine rate of 1.9 homers per nine innings, a 17% home run per fly ball rate. Not so good in Arizona. The other thing is that uh, Atlanta gave up on him. And anytime Atlanta gives up on a starting pitcher, I'm always a little concerned that they know something I don't, that their long-range uh, outlook for a pitcher is usually pretty well considered and pretty well determined. And add to that a third factor, Archie Bradley's coming up. And Archie Bradley's going to push somebody out of the rotation in Arizona. We know that. And it looks to me like Delgado might be that guy, especially, as you said, with Arroyo. Well, absolutely. I mean, at this point, Delgado was a sixth starter. And with Archie Bradley coming up, he becomes a seventh starter. So you're absolutely right about that. So he may find himself further down the depth chart, uh, barring injuries to the to the other starters at this point. All right, Nick, uh, a good session. Thanks very much for joining us. We'll talk to you again next week. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Harold Dickels is our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn to the American League and Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hey, PD, how you doing? I'm a little bit of a cold, but I'm doing all right. Thanks very much for asking. Uh, the American League West has had a ton of pitching injuries recently, Jock, even before the first spring training pitch has been thrown uh, in anger. And this is something you've covered in depth in your recent American League West Playing Time Tomorrow article, uh, starting in Seattle, where Hisashi Iwakuma is going to miss at least three starts, two, three starts in April with a strained pitching finger tendon. This seems like a small thing, so how is it going to affect things in Seattle? Well, it's really interesting. If you look at the Mariner rotation, there weren't a lot of veteran innings to rely on even before Iwakuma's injury. And and now there are even less of them during April. I mean, aside from Felix Hernandez and Iwakuma, Scott Baker is the only Seattle rotation hopeful who has ever completed a full season in, in an MLB uh, rotation. And the last time he did that was was a few years ago. I mean, Baker... Uh, uh, Basically, he he threw he threw 29 minor league innings last year and had three September starts, and he, he just didn't inspire much confidence. He's had elbow problems the last few years. Yeah, and then behind him, you've got the most experienced starter is Erasmo Ramirez, who he he struggled with triceps and velocity issues last year, limited him to 13 starts, and he had a 4.98 expected ERA. So. Um, uh, Seattle's got some issues. Yeah, they do. And uh, boy, I tell you what, if Scott Baker's your third choice, I think you're in real trouble. Now, the story was that because of the problems they were having in the rotation, they might be leaning more heavily on their kids, these young p- pitching prospects that they have. What chance do they have, a Jock, of picking up some of this slack? Yeah, they're really leaning on those guys, uh, particularly Taiwan Walker and uh, and James Paxton. Walker, I'm I'm more confident in than Paxton. Um, he's younger and he has less experience than pa- Paxton does, but he has good stuff and he and he had a pretty good MLB small sample debut last year. Now Paxton pitched pretty well last year, and while he doesn't have the upside that uh, um, Walker has, 
Um, he's got good stuff. His problem has been control and and keeping his mechanics in check. There's a lot of people that don't think he's going to last in the major leagues as a starting pitcher still, and I and I honestly have my doubts. There's one more name here, Brandon Maurer. He was he was the guy, if you remember. He he has a he has a pretty promising repertoire. He had a great spring last year, but he flamed out in April and May as a starter in Seattle. He still has pretty decent BPIs. Um, he's a work in progress, but there's another guy who will get an opportunity this spring. Taiwan Walker, of course, has reportedly had some shoulder issues, which could cause further problems for the uh, Mariners as they try to sort all this out. Now, the rumor was that they were going to go out into the free agent market. They were talking with Nelson Cruz, and apparently those talks got put on hold because they wanted to spend their last remaining free agent big dollars on a pitcher, and the top name on the list was Ubaldo Jimenez. Now he's found a home in Baltimore instead, so he's out in Seattle. How does he look as a starting pitcher for the Orioles? Well, you know, that that's interesting. Um, uh, I mean, the, the real question is, is which Ubaldo is, is going to show up? He had a real strong finish last year, uh, 218 ERA in the second half, 3.0 command, didn't give up many home runs. Um, but his his ground ball trend hasn't been good lately. Um, he pushed it up a little bit last season, but he's been known to give up home runs in bunches. And his control has always been erratic, so he's not in Cleveland anymore. Camden Yards is a completely different animal. Um, I haven't watched Ubaldo that much. He claims that he has added a new pitch that has kind of mitigated his velocity loss. And that uh, 71 to 10 strikeout to walk ratio of his la- over his last eight starts last year was pretty impressive. But that inconsistency still scares me a little. Yeah, me too. I've had Ubaldo Jimenez on my rosters over the years, and it can be a frustrating ride for a fantasy owner because one week you think you've got a Cy Young caliber guy, and the next week you think you've got a guy who might have trouble in AAA. It's going to be a risk-reward situation for most drafters, I'm pretty sure, but I can tell you that this drafter will be keeping Ubaldo at arm's length at best. We talked about Cleveland, so staying in the American League Central, Dan Becker tabbed Jason Kubel as a potential value play in his non-roster invitee batters column. Kubel returns to Minnesota after some really bad seasons away. What do you think of Jason Kubel in Minneapolis again? Kubel is only 32, and he's actually just a year off of a 30-home run season. His problem has been inconsistency over the last four years. If you look at his home runs, uh, he hit 21 homers, then 12, and then 30 in uh, 2012, and then only five last year. And, And part of this has to do with physical issues. The other is his contact, which has just plummeted. Uh, it was 77% in 2011, 70% in 2012, and only 64% last year. So that's a bit of a risk. The other issue that you have here is he's going to Minnesota, which is really a pitcher's park. Now, power is at a premium, um, no doubt, and Kubel has shown that he has it in the past. If you can buy him low enough and you need power, he's the kind of guy you might want to take a flyer on. But, but again, the inconsistency there... Uh, um, isn't real promising. I presume you mean uh, take a flyer if you happen to be in a deep American League only league. I can't see this guy making a roster in a 15-team mix. Yeah, I think the thing that helps Kubel is uh, Minnesota's familiar with him. He's a left-handed hitter, and the DH is over in the American League. That's right. So um, that's where he's going to get most of his opportunity. Staying in the American League Central jock, Matt Gelfand's Facts and Flukes column looks at Lorenzo Cain of the Kansas City Royals and points out that his value has really been torpedoed by injuries. And so it raises the question, if he doesn't get hurt, is he an opportunity for fantasy owners? You know, I look at uh, Cain's peripherals, and, and frankly, I have never been that impressed. He has really good speed. Uh, 
Um, but even in 399 at bats, he stole, um, I think, what, um, 14 bases. Um, he's he's going to get you double steal, double digit steals. But he hits too many ground balls to generate any power. Um, his patience isn't very good. His contact rate is in the mid 70s. It's interesting. I'm still a Jared Dyson fan, and and while Dyson only gets you stolen bases, if you look at the last couple of years, each year Kane has gone into the season as as uh, Kansas City's number one center fielder, and both of those years he's been out earned by Dyson, and primarily because he's found himself uh, on the on the disabled list. Um, Dyson has earned eleven dollars and thirteen dollars uh, in five by five leagues, and of course he's going to earn more in four by four, where stolen bases are are worth proportionally a little more. Um, I think we're underrating Jared Dyson here a little bit. Huh, and uh, I'm thinking we're underrating Lorenzo Kane. Of the two of them, I think Kane has more upside. I, I just don't think Kansas City likes Dyson, and that can be a problem if they're always looking for an excuse not to play him. I think you're right there, Patrick, and it's going to be interesting to see what happens during the year. Um, Dyson is going to have to, to profit from injuries to get another chance again. On the other hand, he's a, he's a very good center fielder. Both of them are good fielders, in fact. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. You mentioned that Dyson has out-earned Kane uh, each of the last couple of years. But, boy, if you prorate Kane out to 550 at-bats instead of 250 at-bats, I think the upside there is pretty significant, although you have to be willing to accept that injury risk. You're dead right about that. Uh, let's go back to the West, and the Texas Rangers have similar issues to Seattle in their rotation. They had some issues already, and then Derek Holland is going to be out until July because he fell over his dog while going up the stairs and tore up his knee. What's going to go on in Texas? Well, this is another real interesting rotation in the West. In fact, um, after studying uh, the American League West this past uh, week and, and their pitching, there could be some real, some real offensive games out there. Um, if you think about what's going on behind you, Darvish, you've got Matt Harrison, who might be projected as the number two. He was hurt all year last year, and now he's going for an MRI, uh, an MRI on his back, which which was his his problem in 2012. He had a couple of back surgeries, and then you've got Colby Lewis, who um, it, it was coming back from elbow surgery and then a hip pointer surgery, and he he didn't pitch any innings in 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 uh, for Texas last year. And behind that, you've got Alexi Agondo, who was pretty much out of the lineup all during the middle of the season. He was unable to sustain any uh, any momentum as a starter, even though his numbers were good. The the only guy aside from you, Darvish, who pitched over a hundred innings last year for Texas is Martin Perez, and and his BPIs don't look particularly impressive, although he can hold his own. He's still real inexperienced, so it's going to be interesting to see what Texas does. Yeah, Martin Perez has yet to pitch a full major league season, and that's uh, certainly cause for concern. And when you talked about Alexi Ogando, the thought that sprung to my mind was an article I read within the last couple of months somewhere, and I don't remember where, I can't give credit where it's due, unfortunately, that suggested that guys who bounce back and forth from the rotation to the bullpen end up being pretty good at neither. And maybe that's what's causing Alexi Ogando's issues. Yeah, that's 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 an interesting take, PD. And while we're on Texas, let's not talk. Let's not forget uh, Darvish and all those sliders he's thrown. There's um, a lot of correlation with pitchers who who throw the ex, the slider uh, for an extreme number of pitches and going on the DL. I wouldn't be surprised to see him spend some time there as well. 
altogether a fragile group. Do the Rangers have any youngsters backing them up they might want to take a look at? Because sounds like there could be opportunities between DL and poor performance from these inconsistent guys. The guys they have right now don't offer a lot of upside, in my opinion. They have Nick Tepish, who's, who's probably has number four starter upside. Um, he actually pitched 100 decent innings. He had a 3.8 ERA. Um, he eventually got... Uh, got bumped from the rotation because of home runs but then after that you have Tommy Hansen who the Angels of all people rejected and you've got Robbie Ross who's been a reliever for all these years so I think Texas could find themselves in a world hurt world of hurt really quickly another thing I don't like about Tommy Hansen is Atlanta gave up on him I mentioned this earlier when I was talking with uh, Harold Nichols in the National League report that any time Atlanta lets a young pitcher go, I'm very, I'm very concerned right away because they're very adroit at handling their young pitchers. And when they give up, it sometimes is a, a clue that maybe we should be giving up as well. And you should mention uh, you're going to be uh, involved in first pitch forums this week in Los Angeles and San Francisco. Give us the dates. I am. We're, uh, I'm heading to San Francisco right after this. Uh, Going to spend some time there with uh, Josh Paley, you know, Saris, uh, uh, Todd Zola, and Laura Michaels and that whole group um, were putting on first pitch there Saturday, or, and then I'm flying back here to L.A. and do the same thing with Jeff, Jeff Erickson, Todd Zola, and a cast of thousands. If you are a baseball fan or a fantasy baseball owner and you have something better to do, I, I don't know what that is. So feel free to walk up and join us there. You can get information at uh, BaseballHQ.com. All right, Jock, thanks for doing this. Catch up with you again next week. Okay, PD. Jock Thompson is Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com and writes regularly and frequently for the site. He's also our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Our regular Friday Talk with Todd is next. This is Baseball HQ Radio. Here's Ray Murphy, General Manager of BaseballHQ.com. Don't have your full set of our 2014 books yet? Well, here is the offer you have been waiting for. There's still plenty of time to get the new season off on the right foot with our 2014 Baseball Forecaster or the just-released 2014 Minor League Baseball Analyst. Just use the code RADIO5, that's R-A-D-I-O number 5, at checkout to take $5 off your order for either of these essential tools for the serious fantasy leader. And everyone who buys directly from us gets the electronic version of the book as well as the key charts and tables just to turbocharge your draft preparations. So remember, it's RADIO5, R-A-D-I-O number 5, at checkout, to get $5 off the baseball forecast for 2014 or the minor league baseball analyst. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio, the Friday News and Notes edition. I'm Patrick Davitt. You want to keep your eyes peeled this week at BaseballHQ.com for these features. Ron Chandler's Fanalytics column looks at the psychology of prizes. Chris Olson's rotisserie column argues now is the time to acquire prospects. And I have a research piece saying, never mind what you've been told, walk rate is not connected to batting average. It's all on the site now at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for our regular Friday Talk with Todd. It's our pleasure to be joined by Todd Zola, contributor to BaseballHQ.com, ESPN.com, FantasyAlarm.com, MastersBall.com, and others. Todd, welcome back to the show. Great to be back, Patrick. I understand you're on your way out to the West Coast, and you're going to be participating in BaseballHQ.com's first pitch forums in Los Angeles and San Francisco. Before we talk about your particular presentation, give us the overview on what goes on at these seminars. 
Well, these are three hours of action-packed information, uh, quick-hitting fantasy baseball talk. We, uh, we have a, a series of speakers from Baseball HQ and invited guests, and we each go up there. And uh, the topic, the, the theme uh, this year is it could happen. In other words, you know, there's a, you know, there's a particular expectation, uh, but you win, you know, what, the way you win is to get guys that, you know, Chris Davis. So we're going to, you know, we're going to tell you players that could do better than, you know, conventional wisdom. And, and not, just, not just players, but why. Anybody can list, you know, list of players. You know, we're going to use some HQ metrics and some other thinking to really, you know, explain why, to justify this, this, this leap of faith that we're having in particular players. It's an interesting point of view because as information gets increasingly um, widely dispersed to everybody who wants it, now you're even starting to see the the uh, theories of gameplay starting to become more out in the mainstream. So all the advantages that used to accrue to people who had better access to information is winnowing away. And now it, as that happens, it seems like the games get more equal and therefore the only way to win might be to, to exert a little well-placed risk. That, yeah, that, that's the key, well-placed risk. Where do you take the risk? You know, do, you know, do you take the risk in the first round or with a $45 player, or do you build a foundation and then look to take your risk later? And that will be part of the presentation because you're, you're going to see players, there will be players from, from the first round all the way down to the end game where it could happen. You know, that will be the, the buzzword of the weekend, These, you know, three-hour sessions, uh, the last maybe 30 to 45 minutes of which we allow the, uh, we allow, the, the, uh, the participants can ask us questions and that's kind of fun too because you get, you know, you get all the speakers up there so you get some different perspectives on, on, on different questions. Um, we, you know, so LA, San Francisco and then they're going to be in uh, Chicago at the, uh, at the same time and uh, sooner, a couple of weeks we'll be down in Washington, then Boston, uh, New York first and then Boston. And uh, Cincinnati is going to be on the docket this year as well. Right, so yeah. those out, out uh, Cincinnati are going to get to, uh, it, if you want, go see the forum. And I believe that's at the ballpark, oh. which uh, makes it, added a little even more to it. I think the idea of it could happen is a good way to shake everybody out of their comfort zone insofar as a lot. so many of us go into our drafts or our auctions secure in a certain amount of what we think is dead certain knowledge. It's absolutely certain that Miguel Cabrera is going to hit 325 with 35 home runs and, and 120 RBIs or whatever we have for our belief in Miguel Cabrera. But it could happen that that's not the case. And it could happen that Chris Davis two years ago, and everybody knew for sure was going to hit you know his 22 home runs, ends up hitting double that Oh sure, uh, and, and we, we've we've done this topic, you know, we've, we've called it the black swan before. We we we've, we've sort of, this has sort of been the theme, the past few years running, just kind of different way. You know, one time we call it hamburger, and the next time we call it Salisbury steak. It's it's sort of the same theory, same topic, but just just you know presented in a slightly different manner. You know, you know, we're we're up there in person. You know, this is a presentation. It's it's part theater. It's part entertainment. So it helps to have a, a subject matter that lends itself to a little theater and, and voice inflection and, and if not, you know, if not, you know, riling up some, some opinions as opposed to just getting up there and just basically justifying the projection, you know, which, which is, you know, the other, you know, this is what we think this will guy do and why, you know, you can, you know, that's easier to do, you know, reading on the website. Right. This makes for much better 
uh, you know, theater and entertainment too to get up there and you learn more, the interactive nature of it. The other thing we're doing is they're actually building some projections on, and this is one of the, one of the parts that I'm going to be doing because I'm, since I'm going to several of the cities, it's going to, you know, I'm going to handle this aspect and we're actually going to build a projection for, actually we've talked about some of these guys, uh, Jose De Labreu and, and Tanaka. We're actually going to go through the process where we have, I'm going to moderate and we have two of the panel members uh, basically sort of battling back and forth, justifying the high end and justifying the low end of a, of a projection for these sort of players that you really don't have a good baseline for. And it's to sort of, you know, give the, uh, the, the, the audience member a kind of a piece into the mind, a little, you know, snapshot into the minds of those of us that do this sort of thing what we have to think about. So, but, you know, we're, we're purposely choosing some of these, you know, you know players that did not Miguel Cabrera. You know, anybody can write down Miguel Cabrera's projection. So we're choosing players that are a little bit different because, you know, who knows how, how these players are going to do. So, you know, it, it may help to have a little idea, a little something behind the numbers that, that you know, for Tanaka and those sorts of guys. After the uh, first pitch forums, you're going to be off to Phoenix, and I understand you're going to be playing an administrative role at the labor auctions. First, got to ask, uh, how come you're not in them yourself? And second, what are you doing there? Uh, well, the, the answer to the first question is, um, for years, for the past several years, the Boston, New York, and Washington swing of the first pitch tour was the same weekend as labor, just timing and all that sort of stuff. And I've been in labor in the past. I've, I've been out in, in, in Phoenix and drafted in the past, but... You know, I just love these first, honestly, I just love these first picks so much that I, you know, if you're faced with a decision, if, if, if given an invitation to labor, which I annually am, and uh, have, if I look at it the same week in his first pitch, I, I tell, tell Mr. Steve Gardner that, um, you know, thank you for the invitation, but I think I'd prefer to, uh, to tag along and, and go to the, the first pitch forums. Um, and it, once they started to do mixed labor, I, I love that. We, we talk, that's the draft we talked about last right. week. So I'm actually in labor. I just do the mixed. I just do the mixed draft. Um, this year, the, this timing worked out that the weekend was was free. That there weren't any forms at all the weekend of labor, and uh, it just kind of conveniently, you know, worked out. And I hang out, go to some spring training games. I can do the same, you know, all I do is sit at a desk at my computer. I can do that in a hotel room. I can do that, you know, I can do that in my house. It doesn't really matter. So I'm on the clock still. But, you know, instead of going out and, uh, you know, and, and, and doing what I do around here for fun, I'm, I'm going to go to a ball game at spring training instead. So, uh, you know, and plus it's get, 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 to see the, uh, set, get to see the crew, get to see the gang. And um, if I'm there, I can't do nothing. i got to be put to work. So I'll be tracking the draft. I'll be the... Uh, I'll be the person on the computer tracking the players and the money and stuff while the, uh, while the auctioneers are doing their thing. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. It's our Friday Talk with Todd with Todd Zola from BaseballHQ.com and FantasyAlarms.com and MastersBall.com all over the place. And Todd, in BaseballHQ.com, you have a new piece up that's kind of a counterpoint to a piece about mock drafts being not so useful that appeared on the site a little while ago by Pat DiCaprio. What's your issue with uh, his position? Uh, it's well, maybe sure. Yeah, it's a counterpoint. It's also sort of an embellishment. Uh, Patrick very rightfully or very correctly pointed out that you don't use a mock draft to set a market value. Uh, there's just not enough mocks to you know correctly set the price. You know to 
people are going to take them in this round and this in this round or whatever. And you know, you go through three or four or five mocks. You can get an ADP, but you really can't gauge the market properly. And I th his his point was, you know, don't use a mock draft to you know so you know exactly where a player is going to go, because unless you do 30, 40, or 50 of them, there's too much variance around the average you know the the, the average to to make it significant. And you know, I agree with that 100%. Um, but, you know, he left the door open that there are some good uses of a mock draft, and I just sort of felt that I wanted to kick that door open. He, he left it, for, he cracked it open. I wanted to kick it open and, and talk a little bit about what I feel those uses are. And you came up with three of them and uh, uh, three utilities, I, I believe, is an expression we can use. What are the three uses of these mock drafts? Okay, the first is... Um, I call it monk in the middle or hamster on the wheel because, uh, you know, we're, depending upon where you're drafting, the dynamics of drafting either first or last or towards, the, towards either end in the middle are a little bit different. Um, actually, I first should say when, for all three of these, there's a sort of, the current theme, the, the thing that I like to think about is the more puzzles you solve, the better you become at solving puzzles. I mean, sort of just leaving it kind of open-ended like that. Forget about the particulars, the actual names and the players and what. The more times you go through doing something, the more t the more crossword puzzles you solve, the better you are at solving crossword puzzles. You know, you learn some words, but you learn the tricks. You know, you know where to look for the big words, where to look for the small words. You, you know, the sort of the global, the global tricks that you learn. So that's kind of all of these individual nuances have that as sort of the big picture theme to the whole thing. Uh, but so the first one, you know, the middle versus the wheel, getting used to doing, being able to time the runs because when you're in a draft, a run is when, you know, several players of a position or even a, a stat are drafted consecutively. If you're, begin, if you're near the end, you know, the beginning, if you're, you know, a lot of picks in between, you could get, you know, completely miss the run. You can completely not have an opportunity to take a player at a position or, or, or a statistic, you know, be it saves or something like that. So the more times that you are in a, in a mock and are able to sort of sense when that run will occur by looking for tells, by looking for, for you know, players in a tier. Once the tier, tier starts to go, you know what's going to go. It, again, it's not going to happen that way every single time, but you do pick up sort of trends and tells That'll help you know. Do I do I start the run or can I hold off another set of picks and and, and, and nail the run in the beginning? You know, get the end of the run or, or whatever. And the more times you look for those tells, the more times you sense it, the better chance of getting it right when it counts. Uh, so that's sort of um, one of the first the first use I had. You know, so draft in the beginning, draft in the end, and then. If it's uncomfortable, just draft in the middle. Because some sometimes you can actually pick where you're going to start from. Some uh, some some leagues or some you know contests, you have the option of of determining where it is that you want to start from. You also have a, a utility that you call riding into the danger zone. Yeah, we talked a little about this uh, before, and I you know to, this is my I think it's the most important thing you could possibly do. And, you know, we, we, we have our own players, we have our own strategies, we have a comfort zone. We, there's something that we always, you know, given our druthers, this is what we would do. We would, 
you know, take four hitters and then a starting pitcher and then a catcher and then a close, you know, something that, you know, a comfortable draft. Um, but sometimes it doesn't work out that way. And what I'd like to do is purposely not do that particular strategy in a few mocks to force myself to have to adjust. You know, hopefully when it counts, you know, I, I get to pick, you know, the players that I feel are going to do the best and, and pick them in the right places and use the strategy that I feel is the most successful. But in a, in a draft, sometimes, it, like I said, it doesn't always occur that way based upon what some of the other picks are. So the more options, the more times I've had having to think on the fly, oh, so all right, you know, it's okay, take a step, take a beat, take a breath, and make your pick as opposed to panicking and, 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 and just going off in, in another direction. The more times you're faced with grace under pressure, the better chance of you being able to handle it if, you know, when it counts, when money's on the line or prize on the line later, the more times you've dealt with it, you know, sort of previously, the better you'll be equi equi equipped to, to deal with it later. With the, uh, with the other interesting point being, you know, if, you, if you're always drafting the same players, there's a whole bunch of players in that area, in that tier, in that neighborhood, but you're not even looking at. All right, you read the projection, you went to the forecaster, and you read the quip, but that doesn't mean you know the player. I mean, you know, but so being forced to consider more players to put on your roster, now you really know the player. You don't get to know the player till you deciding if you're putting them on your roster or not. What's his upside? What's his downside? What's the risk? What what can I do later if he gets hurt? You don't you know you don't get that from reading a projection and reading the the quip or whatever. So to me, that's even better. Is you really get acquainted with the entire player pool by forcing yourself to do things that you wouldn't normally do. And on a related matter, you say by failing to prepare, you're preparing to fail. Right now, this is something that I actually got. I actually got burned by this myself, and uh, you know, been doing this for years. Uh, I got burned by this myself uh, in a recent mock draft that I did. Um, just to be able to be acclimated to the conditions, just to know that you can find players quickly, just to know that, in an, that, that you can track everything just the way you want to track it. You can cross the players off. You can not lose track of multiple position players, uh, that sort of thing. That if you're, near, if, if you're not on the end, but if you're two or three players from the end, that you're able to track their rosters so that you know to take this particular player first because they've already filled, you know, or they don't need that, you know, or take them second because they don't need that player, etc. Uh, so the more times, you know, the organ, you know, preparation isn't just knowing the players. Preparation is organization of your materials. So I got burned the other night by um, just my actually what it was it was an it was an Excel issue. I was doing a points league and I and I improperly uh, did a calculation. I added some strikeouts instead of subtracting strikeouts and ended up drafting Chris Davis in the first round and had I you know double checked my Excel had I you know really looked at the lists I would have caught that uh oh so you know I had to make that you know adjustment on the fly and all right so I got a Chris Davis and you know my first pick instead of my third you know well you know if the league was played out it would be fine but you know I kind of should have practiced what I preached and I didn't and you know, I didn't it go that extra mile and, and you know I, so I did the equation I didn't really check it uh, so um, 
you know, didn't, didn't just wrote the article and didn't practice what I'm preaching. Yeah, I was talking uh, with Gene McCaffrey a couple of shows ago about this very topic. Uh, he doesn't use a laptop at all at draft. He finds them a little confining, I guess. And I told him the story that the, my first time in Tout Wars, I had a very elaborate spreadsheet set up with my nominations that were going to appear automatically. But everything was predicated on me typing in the name of each player as he was drafted and typing it into the correct team with the correct dollar value. And, of course, you know Jeff Erickson runs a fairly quick draft. And as a result, after three players, I was hopelessly lost. I, I just... I had to realize there's no way I can keep up with just the logistical aspect of this. And I had to go to plan B, which was to just use my grids, and I and I, I drafted from there. But had I had a chance to participate in something like that earlier, I certainly would have learned my lesson and figured out either I've got to amend the software or I've got to figure out some other way of doing things altogether. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a paper and, you know, pen and paper person myself. But I, I mean, actually thinking this year of using the computer not to track, but there, I have thoughts about players, and I just I come sometimes I forget them. <laughs> so what I'm thinking of doing is just using a just using Excel to to keep you know the notes that I make along the along the line, and just use that you know. So if I want to remind myself what I what I you know a little nuance that I found about a player that you can't necessarily capture on a piece of paper. Uh, to read, and I can't remember them all either. So I am going to have a laptop with me this year, but it's not going to be. Uh, so, so, sorry, Merv, it's not. It's not going to be Rotolab. It's just going to be my my notes on players that I've accumulated from profiling and projecting and just doing drafts along the way. I think I might bring my laptop back this year, Todd, and I, I'm just going to put down the dollar values rather than the player names, so I have an idea when spots are getting filled in, roster spots, and have a better idea exactly how much money each guy has left. I know they the the people who run the draft provide that information, but it's it's not always updated as fast as I would like. So I'm thinking if I just put in you know, uh, $15 for Corey Schwartz at third base. I don't care who it is. I know that he's got right. a guy there, and I know how much he's he's down 15 bucks from whatever he had before, and then have a summary at the bottom telling me how much he has left, what his maximum bid is, and I can glance at his roster and see where his holes are. I think I might be able to manage that in the limited time that's pr- that's provided by this very fast-paced auction. Yeah, well, part of what, yeah, part of, it's funny, part of what I'm going to be doing at Labor, and they're sort of, from what I hear through the grapevine, glad that I'll be doing this. The um, this the website that that scores it. What I'm going to be doing is I'm actually going to have commissioner service to the website and sort of emulating the auction as it goes on. So when a player is nominated, I'm going to you know nominate him as if I'm doing an online auction. And when he's purchased, you know I'm going to put in their purchase and put him on that team. And the website generates the draft board, you know, with the players and keeps track of the money all by itself. Right. So they're going to have, you know, they can go online and they, you know, we're going to project it, but they're also going to go online if they wanted to go online as if they're in an online draft and be able to have the draft board right on their laptops. Oh, that'd be good. So uh, I will I will talk to the powers that be at Tout Wars and, and we, we, could, we could very well possibly get it done there as well. So it's a little experiment and we're uh, crossing our fingers. Unfortunately for you folks out there that are hoping that'll be a public draft board, Labor, uh, Labor keeps things hush-hush for the uh, Leviathan, right. for the uh, Baseball Weekly big issue, which, you know, which is what they've been doing for years. And quite frankly, it was one of the, one of the publications that helped make the game so popular. So we're going to respect their, respect their wishes, and you're not going to get a dollar value out of me. 
You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. It's Patrick Davitt. And our Friday talk with Todd with Todd Zola from BaseballHQ.com, FantasyAlarms.com, MastersBall.com, and Point South. Todd, at FantasyAlarms.com, you have a new article about ADPs. And I thought you started with one of the most interesting things I've read in quite a while. When we look at these ADPs, we're relying mostly on decisions about players who were made by guys who didn't win their leagues. Yeah, I kind of I said it tongue-in-cheek at the NFBC last year, and then I'm sort of, you know what, that, that's actually true, though. You know, if you know, NFBC has 15 teams, so what we're doing is we're basing our picks on one winner and, you know, 14 losers. And sure, it's a little, little hyperbole, but when you're, you think about it, you know, maybe it's not. Uh, you know, and sure, and I, you know, one guy told me, well, what I want to do is I want to get the ADP of, you know, such and such, and, you know, all the, and they named three or four, you know, successful players. Well, I'm not sure that would be helpful either. But basically, you know, it, it's, it's the market, an ADP is how the market perceives a player. Uh, the point of the, you know, the rest of my, my piece was it doesn't matter how the market perceives a player, what matters is how you perceive that player versus the expectation of that draft spot when you take him. And I you know, made the comparison to auctions that it's real easy that if you feel a player is worth 20 bucks, you, know, you, you stop at 20, you know, 20 bucks. But in an auction for some reason, where we're, sorry, in a, in a draft for some reason, we're driven by the ADP and we have the mentality of, well, I, mean, I haven't ranked 65th, so if I really, really want this guy, his ADP, Oh geez, I better draft him, you know, at the fiftieth pick. Uh, but yet, that's you know that's the equivalent of overpaying in an auction. So the, the piece just kind of talks about that and how a different way to look at it, so that you're not using an ADP, you're you're thinking in auction terms when you're doing a draft, and and how you know the dollar value may trigger your mind to say no, whereas using an ADP, the philosophy or the mindset is more. Hmm, where do I need to draft this guy and still get him? You know, kind of forgetting that by doing so, you're giving back or you're eating into the potential, if not eliminating, whatever return on the investment that you could get. Yeah, I thought that was a really insightful thing that, that you had in the article, which was if you look at historically how these drafts break down, pretty much you can say the first round is what if from the 40s down into the low 30s, the second round a little bit lower than that, and so on down the list. And if you draft a guy in the sixth round, which is a fourteen to fifteen dollar round, and you're gra- you're grabbing a seven dollar player for these ADP reasons or a nine dollar player, it's the equivalent of spending fifteen bucks on a nine dollar player, and that's just not the way you can win. Ask Larry Schechter. Right. Yeah. And, and again, for whatever reason, you know, thinking, you know, well, all right, I want I want Billy Hamilton. I, I really want Billy Hamilton. All right, his his ADP is, is less than so and so. Um, and now you take him a couple rounds. You know, I'm using the word Billy Hamilton because I happen to hear him talked about in these exact terms last night uh, on a radio show. Um, you know, if you, you really want this guy, you're going to have to take him around early because he's rising up the ADP. Well, that's tell you know, if you, if you really want this guy, you're going to lose money if you draft him. That's what I'm hearing. Because, or, you know, because, so instead, I, you know, assign a dollar value to each site spot and, See if my player, when I pick him, if I feel he's got a plausible pathway to earn that, sure, I'll, I'll take him at that spot. Now, this isn't to say there's no use of an ADP, that it's completely useless, because you can still time picks along the way, gauge the market. So if you're, if you're debating between two players and 
you really want them both, and it's reasonable that you can get them both if you choose wisely. It, it can help you decide which of the two to choose. Uh, but I, you know, I'm not gonna. To me, it's almost as if ADPs replace draft lists for some people, and that 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 I want to get away from. Yeah, it seems to me that what we should be looking at is look at the ADP to determine whether the market is way out of sync with your evaluation of the player. That is, uh, using that chart that you put into your piece at FantasyAlarms.com, if we assume that the seventh round is worth 13 to $14, and you know, notice that a guy is going in that round, but you have him valued as a $20 player, you have to view that as a possibility to get a bargain. You might even say, I'll, I'll draft him around ahead of the ADPs, but I'm not going to draft him in the $20 round if I think he's a $20 player, because I don't have to. I can wait a couple of extra rounds, maybe slot in a real $20 player there, and, and still get my second $20 player a round earlier than everybody else thinks he's worth. Oh, absolutely. And um, that, yeah, that, I mean, you, you, you know, people, you can't do that for 23 rounds, but sure, you can do that for two or three or four rounds and gain an edge, you know, and, and that is the use of it. You know, it, it's a tool. It's not, you know, it's not the be-all, end-all. And the other thing I kind of said in the piece is, is, you know, when we do an auction, think about how silly this may sound. Let's get a bunch of auction values, let's average them, and then let's use that as, our, as, our, as the point in which we're going to decide whether to bid more or less. Because that's kind of what you're doing with an ADP. It's, you know, a little exaggeration. I know there's a little more finesse than just that. But, you know, I th an ADP, for some reason, it just... I think it, it relaxes your mind. It fools your mind into thinking it's something that it's not. Exactly so. Just a tool. Can't get married to it. Uh, you got to stick with your own valuations, uh, come what may, and, and, uh, and use them to guide the decisions that you make. And using all uh, mock drafts, ADPs, they're all just tools to help you understand where your projections fit in against a marketplace of, of competitors. Todd, thanks very much for talking with us again. This is really interesting. Have fun in L.A. and San Francisco and Phoenix, and we'll talk to you again in a week. Yeah, come, we'll come to you from Phoenix next week. That's going to be fun. Todd Zola writes for BaseballHQ.com, FantasyAlarms.com, MastersBall.com is his mothership, and other places. And he's here at Baseball HQ Radio every Friday. Our commentaries are next. Stay tuned to Baseball HQ Radio. Hi, this is Ray Murphy, co-general manager of Baseball HQ, with this week's special offer exclusively for Baseball HQ Radio listeners. If you can't get enough of the great analysis from Patrick and the rest of the gang on Baseball HQ Radio, you're ready for a subscription to BaseballHQ.com. The insights you get on this podcast are just the tip of the iceberg. Come see everything else we have to offer, now at a special rate for Baseball HQ Radio listeners. Use the code RADIO5, that's R-A-D-I-O number 5, at checkout to take $5 off a draft prep or full season subscription to Baseball HQ. Give yourself everything you need to dominate your league in 2014. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Now it's time for Master Notes, and with a look at takeaways from his labor mix draft, Here's BaseballHQ.com general manager and speculator columnist Ray Murphy. On February the 11th, 15 industry writers gathered online for the third annual Labor Mixed League draft. Labor Mixed is a 15-team 5x5 format using batting average and not on base percentage with the standard 23 roster spots plus 6 reserves for a total of 29 rounds of drafting fun on a Tuesday night in February. I had the number 3 seed in the snake format. Back in 2012, in the first year of this league, I shared the championship with Grantland's Jonah Carey. 
Last year, I plunged to a lousy 13th place finish. I approached this draft with the mindset that 2014 is going to prove one of those prior finishes to be an outlier. The draft results are freely available online for anyone who wants to review them. Being mindful of Patrick Davitt's excellent piece from last week in this space about the limited utility of expert league draft results, I don't want to give the traditional round-by-round recap. Instead, here are just a few of my thought processes at various points in the draft. First, McCutcheon over Goldschmidt at number three. Current ADP rankings give a slight edge to Goldschmidt over McCutcheon in the number three slot, but I opted for McCutcheon for three reasons. McCutcheon has a longer, more stable track record than Goldschmidt, who was a first-round earner for the first time in 2013. Our research shows that first-time top 15 earners have a particularly low probability of repeating. Second, I prefer to stick with five category contributors early in the draft wherever possible. And third, I'm a stickler for batting average with my early picks. You can manage a batting average late in the draft, but you always have more endgame options if you can afford to take on BA risk in the endgame. I focus a lot of early attention on building a batting average cushion. My only concern in taking McCutcheon at number three was that, in looking ahead to options at my round two, round three picks, I saw a lot of outfielders among my preferred targets there, and I really didn't want to start my draft with potentially taking three straight outfielders. That ended up not being an issue. My second takeaway involves getting Freddie Freeman to fall to me in the second round. At the 28th pick, I considered this a steal. ADP wouldn't call it that, as Freeman sits at about number 25 in the latest ADPs, so well within a reasonable range of the 28th pick. I predict Freeman will be an ADP riser in the coming weeks, however, as more and more drafters think through the first round permutations and move on to the second round. A month from now, I think it will be common to see Freeman going closer to pick 20 than pick 30. In short, it would be dangerous to look at this draft grid and say to yourself, I'm targeting Freddie Freeman late in round two. I think I just got a little lucky here. My third takeaway involves taking two catchers relatively early. This wasn't necessarily a priority of mine entering the draft, but I was pleased with the development. At the top of my drafts, I like to make watch lists just to ease the draft tracking process while I'm settling into a draft. Knowing I was taking McCutcheon with my first pick, I made a target list of players I was eyeing for my round three turn and another for the round four and five turn. Once I made all four of those picks, as round six crept back toward my next, my next pick, there was still one player from my round four slash five list that hadn't been taken. And Brian McCann did make it all the way back to me. So picking him late in round six was one of my easier decisions of the night. My second catcher was Matt Weeders in round 10. The catcher pool is interesting this year in the way it segments itself. There are about nine catchers in the top tier. I'm not saying they are all interchangeable, but there could be a lot of different rankings within that group of nine. I knew I wanted one of those and already had McCann locked up. But when my round 10 pick came up, Weeders was the last of that top nine still on the board, and I saw an opportunity to snare two of the top tier options while exerting some pressure on the rest of the drafters. Another team had locked up two catchers already. So with the two of us owning four of those top nine catchers, 13 other teams were now going to have to fish in the next tier for at least their second catcher spot, and several would need to get both of their backstops from that tier. It's also worth noting that in the two catchers I selected, I I should have acquired high at-bat producers. Weeders is one of the annual games play leaders at the position, and McCann should have the opportunity for additional designated hitter at-bats in New York. One reason not to load up on catchers early in your draft is that their lower AB totals can create a drag on your counting stats. 
This year, there are a number of catchers who will avoid that problem by moving out from behind the plate at least occasionally. Doubling up on those catchers early is more viable if you think you can get at least a thousand at-bats out of your pairing. My fourth takeaway is that drafting seven weeks before opening day can be tricky. Two years ago in this league, drafting at around the same calendar time, I drafted Joaquin Soria and Ryan Madsen as my closers, only to see both of them undergo Tommy John surgery between our draft and opening day. When you draft in February, you're drafting a little bit blind. So when I grabbed Jose Veras as a third closer, I handcuffed him with Pedro Strop in the endgame. My second closer was Fernando Rodney, who had just signed in Seattle, and I also wanted to grab Danny Farquhar as his handcuff, but got beaten out. Normally, in the last nine or ten rounds of a draft, I'm laser-focused on throwing darts at high-upside breakout candidates. I did some of that here, but the early draft forced me into playing some defense as well as offense in the endgame. A month from now, if Varys and Rodney are having normal, effective springs, I likely wouldn't spend a pick on their handcuffs. And for my last takeaway, I should make it clear that I'm not really that high on Alexei Ramirez. My draft had gone just about optimally up until my round 8 and 9 picks. At that point in the draft, I was scheduled to appear live on Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio, where the draft was being covered. I went on the air as the 8th round started, some 10 to 11 picks for my turn. After talking about the Goldschmidt-McCutcheon decision for what seemed like 10 to 15 actual seconds, host Glenn Colton, who was also in the league, said, Okay, Ray, I see you have a pick in 15 seconds, so I'll let you go take care of that. Gee, thanks, Glenn. Scrambling to not get auto-picked, I grabbed Alexei Ramirez out of my queue. He wasn't a disastrous pick, but he was a bit of a reach at that spot. Consider this a reminder that not every pick in these drafts has sound logic behind it. Anyway, with this draft done, there's not much more to do with this team now other than to put it on a shelf until April and hope nothing bad happens to it before the real games start. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Ray Murphy of BaseballHQ.com. Ray Murphy is BaseballHQ.com's speculator columnist and a co-general manager of the site. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio, the Friday News and Notes edition for February 21st. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 10 of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our League Watch News analysts were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson, our regular Friday Talk with Todd correspondent, Todd Zola, and our Master Notes commentator, BaseballHQ.com speculator columnist and co-general manager Ray Murphy. I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, check out fate. <coughs> Also, check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Tuesday with our long-awaited interview with USA Today senior fantasy editor Steve Gardner on our next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners, it is Baseball HQ Radio. Congratulations to the gold medal winning Team Canada Ladies Hockey Team, the men's and women's curling teams, and we'll see about that hockey gold for the men on Sunday. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators. 
or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.